0: Welcome to the DTP podcast for November 2023, volume 61, number 11. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTP's Deputy Editor.
1: Hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief.
0: Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will discuss the content of the November issue of DTP. I thought we'd start with an email that I recently received from a GP and, and just see what you think and what your, your take is on it, James. So let me just summarise the email. It says, you know, firstly, thank you for your, your great content and in particular podcasts. I find them engaging and really useful learning on the go. So thank you for that that feedback. But the main question that's raised is, are you planning to cover the evidence for lipid lowering therapies that are now being formally incentivized as part of the QOF Um, cholesterol targets, and of particular interest is the QOF target for patients with CKD to be on a statin or other lipid lowering therapy if a statin isn't suitable. It goes on to say, I'm aware of the evidence for statins in CKD, but what is the strength of the evidence for the alternative agents? Is there really any long-term evidence that these drugs reduce the long-term risks in patients? With CKD, um, well, great question. Uh, thanks for the feedback. Thanks for the question. Uh, probably we should add it to the list of articles that we're going to commission. But th- James, quickly, what's your take on it?
1: I, it is a great question, and the answer is, or well, my understanding, and I, you know, is is actually the evidence. I'm not aware of the evidence for the other agents, and of course, CKD is a funny old thing because the the more severe your CKD the less even statins seem to be beneficial. Patients, for example, on dialysis really do benefit very little from a statin. I I sort of thought I might um, look up Julian Treadwell's fantastic website. And if you haven't found this yet, gpevidence.org. It's a great um, evidence-based website that looks at exactly these sorts of issues and gives you uh, the evidence, background with nice blobograms um, to use with patients for decisions and things so um, unfortunately he he hasn't covered that um, yet I'm sure he will if he can find evidence and I think we should certainly have a look at this because it's a big area at the moment there's a big push isn't there for reducing cardiovascular deaths in the UK and that's all good Um, but I think people well patients in particular want to know well okay how much benefit is there going to be from Me taking a statin or another lipid lowering drug. And I know that NICE says that anyone with CKD should be considered for a statin because most of them will have at least a 10%, 10 year risk of heart disease or stroke. But of course, a lot of patients, when they're told that, reply saying, Well, that's, you know, if I've got a 10% risk, that means I've got a 90% risk I won't have a heart attack or a stroke in the next 10 years. And frankly, that's great news and I'm off and I don't want a statin. So so I think it's really important that we are as GPs able to give patients the information they need to make that decision. Um so yeah, something to look at for sure. Um But um moving with the Times, which is actually the the title of your editorial this week, David, you're talking about that that amazing institution, the BNF.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. Um yeah, I thought it was a good time to reflect on the announcement which came out recently that the uh, current edition of, or the paper issue of the BNF and the BNF for Children will be the last print copies circulated through the NHS in England. Um, let's start with a quick declaration of interest that, that BMJ, which, which is our publisher, is also joint publisher of the BNF alongside the pharmaceutical press. So I guess we're sort of cousins of the of the, of the BNF. So we're distantly related. But that being said, um, this is quite significant, I think. Um, we've had a national formary and it's been evolving. Well, it predates the NHS. It's been evolving for over 80 years. Um, had one in the Second World War. That evolved into the national formery, which then became the British national formery. But I guess in 18, 1981, it was when the BNF became its sort of latest incarnation, published every six months, and that, that first edition had, I think it was 400 pages and, and about four and a half thousand products. But you skip forward, you know, 40 plus years, and we've now got a BNF that's 1,900 pages long, um, includes more than 18,000 products, and weighs a staggering one kilogram. So, so it, it, it has grown. And of course, we have got the digital versions, um, they've been around for some time, and we can access them online. Um, via uh, computers or apps for phones. So a lot of things come together that says this is probably a, quite a wise decision um, that, that's been made for the NHS in England, that the BNF will be accessible digitally. Um, I guess for me, there are two main reasons why this, this does seem sensible. Uh, one is safety. You know, the, the BNF is is updated every month online, whereas the book is clearly only updated every six months or as the NHS has been having it every year, they get a new new issue. So if you're using a, a an out-of-date copy, you're you not seeing the latest um, guidance or, or safety information. Uh, and also environmentally, you know, we have um, a book that weighs a kilogram that's got to be printed, distributed around the NHS. And if we're cutting that out, then we must be having a, a, you know, a beneficial effect on on the environment. So it seems to be good news really that, that, that the BNF is, is still going to be available. Um, you can still buy a print copy if you want one uh, for as long as there's demand. Um, and we're not sure yet what Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales are doing, but certainly in England um, it'll be digital from from, from now on. Um, so it just yeah so good news, I think. What do you think?
1: Mm. I I think, I mean I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. I think first of all, it just it just demonstrates. The immense expansion of therapeutics doesn't it if you think just in my working lifetime it's quadrupled in size I've actually got a, a, a it's a I've got a pharmacopoeia um, a little it's not a BNF but it's a pharmacopoeia from um, Bart's hospital in 1916 and it's about oh half a centimetre thick and contains mostly stuff to do with tincture of rhubarb um, but what's fascinating if you look on the inside this is this is a document that was reprinted countless times over a period of thirty years without changing, and then I've got the I've got the fiftieth anniversary BNF on my shelf as well, which was I think two thousand and five, and that was what I think a lot of my age will remember as the BNF, the bright coloured um, covers, sort of comfortable paperback sort of size. And now we've got this, this enormous book, which, which is very difficult to use because it's quite hard to open. And you're absolutely right. Um, I think uh, the time has come definitely to say, look, therapeutics has become so big and so complex that the idea of having a paper copy is probably not right. Just the one thought I have, though, is I know that there was an enormous demand in um, other parts of the world for BNFs to help with education around therapeutics and as as clinical agents, and whilst they might be um, out of date, if you like, in some respects, very often actually the information embedded in them um, doesn't doesn't go out of date. You know whether it be dosages or whether it be um, contraindications or even uh, drug interactions. So I think I think there may be something about. I hope that um, there's there's some perhaps way that. Uh, medicine is supported in other parts of the world still by by the publishers or someone making sure that paper copies are available in places where it isn't but but you know that i think apart from that as you say good a good thing um and certainly i mean i've always loved paper uh but actually the the app is exceptionally good now and um it really there really isn't any need to pick up a paper copy now unless you want to do some
0: pilates with it and and the other thing is that um, if you're of a certain generation and need glasses, the print was was getting quite small in the uh, <laughs> in the paper, paper coffee. Yes. So mm-hmm. it's so it's whereas you can adjust your your tablet or your your um, app to whatever size you want. So, Indeed. Uh, so yes, so that's uh, an interesting development, but but um, probably the right thing to be doing. Mm. Okay, thank you for that. Let's have a quick look at um, one of our DDB select items this month and this is an interesting study that, that delves into the world of coroner's reports and uh, medication related deaths um, what did what did the authors find
1: yeah i mean i think this is fascinating I, I i know we have covered some of these regulation 28 reports as they're sometimes referred to i think as case reports in the past and often there's a lot of learning that comes out of them and this is really interesting sort of retrospective look at coroner's reports between 2013 and 2022 um, and i think the authors point out in in their paper that um, it's been quite hard to pick these up because they're not um, necessarily all published so it so they're not entirely sure if they've got the full number of them but they found over well 3897 of these reports and what was fascinating is about one in five of them Involved medication of some sort, and of course, that's of interest to us as a therapeutics bulletin. Um, and I think you know, in it, there's quite a learning about which therapeutic agents actually were most often uh, uh, in these reports, and it was, and, and that was a surprise to me because I imagined it was going to be things like anticoagulants and um. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, you know, drugs that we're constantly warned about using. But interesting enough, actually, it was opioid analgesics that made up about 22%. Antidepressants, hypnotics, anticoagulants did come in as about 7%. Um, and also, the other interesting thing was only 63% of medicines had been prescribed. Um, so, about almost a third of them had been illicitly obtained or involved medicines that had been prescribed for someone else. So uh, it, it's a, it's quite an interesting insight into um, coroners' inquests and some of the issues around therapeutics when things go wrong.
0: And what what was impressive was that they, because if you've tried to look at these reports, they're not easy um, to search, they're not easy to find, um, and they had to set up a, a, an automated system to extract the. The reports and get get the data out of them and and then they found that a lot of them aren't standardized people report things in in, in different ways so you, you and well i suppose one of the good things is that they highlighted is the fact that wouldn't it be great if if there was a more standardized approach to reporting and describing these things so that there could be more learning from 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 some of these out- outcomes um, now whether whether that was it i don't know whether the um, the judiciary and the coroner's services is, is one that is quick to adjust to um, recommendations and whether it's something that is easy to change. But it would be great, wouldn't it, if there was more, a better way of tapping into this information.
1: Well, and of course, it's it's quite timely because um, we are moving towards the medical examiners being involved with every death. Um, That becomes a statutory obligation in April 2024. And that is an opportunity for data to be picked up and considered at that moment, you know, even if you don't decide to refer to a coroner. Um, so you, you're right, I think I think some standardization would be good. In many respects, these are the ultimate yellow cards in a, in a way. Um, uh, and I think, you know, the, certainly as I said, the times we've looked at them has often been some really useful learning in them. I think what's fascinating too, they discovered that although it is a, um, a statutory obligation by law to respond if you receive one of these letters. Actually, a significant number um, that that response was long overdue, and it wasn't or isn't clear um, what powers there are in place to ensure that that people do respond when they receive a section twenty eight report from a coroner.
0: Yes, I wasn't sure whether there's, a, there's a, an expected time limit on on responding, or whether there isn't in, in which case they just languish until <laughs> until somebody remembers but yes it was it was quite uh, disturbing wasn't it that, that almost half weren't weren't didn't have a response when mm. actually you, you think there is something um if there's been an organization or an individual identified as as being important in the findings then it would be useful to know w- what that organisation's response is but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah yes shame shame that they're they're, they're not there so I think I think they've done a great job. Um, it, be, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if the coroners' reports could become more uh, more user friendly um, and, and maybe even, as you say, integrate with with yellow cards to to you know, to share the learning?
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Okay. Let's move on. Um, our main view uh, article this month is an introduction to. Uh, pharmacogenetics we thought it's it was time that DTB dipped its toe in the world of pharmacogenetics um, do you want to give a kind of brief overview of this one
1: yeah this is this is a really useful um, introduction if um, you're unaware of pharmacogenetics um, this is a great place to start the authors look at um, the nomenclature used what the evidence currently is Around the use of pharmacogenetics and and more importantly, perhaps the implementation of it and and why perhaps it hasn't been picked up as as quickly as we thought. I mean, I think once the human genome was sort of discovered and and you know there for all to see, I think there was an enormous enthusiasm that somehow immediately we would be able to tailor drugs to individual people. And yet, really, this hasn't, hasn't happened um, in the way that perhaps was initially thought it would by the enthusiasts. But this is a great um, article. We use the um, particular issues around clopidogrel and the cytochrome P450. And there's a particular gene that codes for the activity of cytochrome P450. And there are particular variants um, where, as a, as a, as a, a genetic issue they have much less functioning um, P450 enzyme. And that has a big issue when it comes to drugs like clopidogrel, which is a pro-drug because it means that it's not um, activated in such a way as it might be. And that can have impacts on patients who've had cardiac interventions. And uh, quite an interesting discussion about ticagrelor versus clopidogrel. Um, Ticagrelor isn't a pro-drug. And we think that the reason why it seemed better than clopidogrel in some of the head-to-head studies in patients who'd had um, coronary artery interventions is simply because they hadn't allowed for the pharmacogenetics of clopidogrel rather than actually clopidogrel being less effective than ticagrelor. So a really interesting element of where pharmacogenetics is. And I think this is something which I think will suddenly take off once um people really begin to recognize its importance And i think every every gp and clinical pharmacist out there knows that there are some patients whose um reaction to drugs is so very different from others and if we could have some way of objectifying that i think it would make um therapeutics much better in the sense that we'd have far less side effects or far less um outcomes that we didn't want if we knew more about individual patients' um, genetics and its effect on their, their drugs action.
0: I mean, presumably at the moment there's, there's scalability and cost issues that, that mean that it isn't, um, or hasn't been practical to implement this um, universally, but is, is that likely to change? I mean, I get the impression from the authors that that, that developments and, and reductions in the price of these things will, will make a difference.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, I suppose if, if, you, are, if you are a pharmaceutical company, um, the drugs get prescribed whether you get it right or not as a clinician. It's, it's often it's more the clinician and the patient who really wants to get their heads around this, isn't it, than actually the manufacturers of drugs or the system. I mean, the, where the time and effort will be saved would be around uh, patients either not having the outcomes they want or actually having side effects, and clinicians, prescribers, time in having to see patients again because they've had adverse effects or whatever it might be. So that's where the saving and the, if you like, the benefit is, and and there's often not a monetary value put on that at the moment. But yes, as you say, once hopefully um, the cost of these. Uh, tests drops one hopes that they will become more
0: mainstream and I guess it like all things nice will get involved and there'll be a cost effectiveness analysis to work out which which are uh, which are the ones to do and which are the ones not to do but um, but at the moment it's not there yet but um, coming soon I assume
1: (laughs) coming soon
0: okay thank you very much Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website dtb.bmj.com and all our previous podcasts are also available on our, on our website. Uh, if you want to get involved with DTB or want to send us an email, suggest topics for articles, be a reviewer or help us write articles, or just leave us a comment, please email us at DTB at bmj.com. So many thanks for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for, scarily, the December 2023 podcast.